Our passage for this morning is in the book of Psalms, chapter 32. Psalm 32 says this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, where it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But the steadfast love, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Almighty and gracious Father, since our whole salvation stands in our knowledge of your holy word, strengthen us now by your Holy Spirit that our hearts may be set free from all worldly thoughts and attachments to our flesh so that we may hear and receive that same word and recognizing your gracious will for us may love and serve you with earnest an eager delight, praising and glorifying you in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. August 28th, the year 430 A.D. It's a warm summer night in the ancient Roman city of Hippo in North Africa. And a man who many church historians would call the greatest theologian of the entire history of the church, other than the ones who wrote scripture, lays dying in his bedroom. His name is Augustine. This one man would have a more significant impact on the church than almost anyone else. See, the 5th century, when he lived, was a, was a tumultuous time for the church. The Roman Empire was falling. Barbarian armies were roaming the lands, wiping out Christians. 
Heretics were invading the church, perverting the doctrines of grace found in the scriptures. But one man stood out above everyone else in this time, Augustine. In fact, his writings were so powerful and so impactful that a thousand years after he lived, they would inspire a little-known monk named Martin Luther to stand against the entire Roman Catholic Church, thus launching the Protestant Reformation In fact, out of all of the church fathers, the Protestant reformers cited Augustine more than anyone else. That's how impactful his life was. But but on this day, in, in the year 430, he lays dying. He's 75 years old. He's he's run the race. He's fought the good fight. He's remained faithful. But but as he lays dying on his bed. He has one last request. He asks his friends to inscribe the words of Psalm 32 on the wall of his bedroom in letters big enough so that he can read them from his bed. This great theologian in the last hours of life wanted nothing more than to meditate on the words of Psalm 32. Out of all the words of Scripture he could have chosen, he chose this psalm. Why? Why this psalm? Out of all the other psalms, I mean, why not a psalm like Psalm 23? What treasures lay hidden within this psalm that Augustine saw that that was so special that he wanted to meditate on these in his last hours of life? My prayer this morning is that we'll see as we dig into this text. The structure of Psalm 32 is is interesting. It's kind of like one of those movies where it begins with the end. You know what I'm talking about? Where the first scene ends up being the last scene of the movie. And the rest of the movie is kind of explaining how you got to that scene. Right? Like Forrest Gump starts this way, right? If you've seen Forrest Gump, it starts out with him on the bench. And then the rest of the movie is the story of how he got to that bench and why he's on the bench. Psalm 32, it's kind of like that. It begins with David just, just declaring God's goodness and the joy of forgiveness. And then the rest of the psalm explains how he came to know this forgiveness. The psalm kind of starts here, goes down, and then comes back up like this. I think you'll feel that as we dig into this. But, but before we even get into verse 1, we, we have this little, this little uh, introductory phrase. It says, a maskil of David. Now, we don't really know what maskil means. It's probably some musical term, right? The Psalms is a book of hymns that they would sing. But, but this tells us something right here, of David. It's pretty simple. It tells us that David wrote this psalm. David was the most famous king of Israel. David was a ferocious warrior in general. He was a conqueror. But he was also a musician and a poet. As far as we can tell, David wrote about 73 of the 150 psalms we have in the book of Psalms. So about half 
David is probably most famously known because the scriptures describe him as a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. And and so this is the man that wrote our psalm this morning. That's important to know. Now this psalm starts off very similar to the psalm we looked at last week. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. Well, well, who is this blessed man? Who who is this happy person as we talked about last week? Well, we see this in verse 1 and 2. The blessed person this week is the one whose sin has been forgiven. Look look at verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one or the person whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So, we see here that the blessed person is not a person without sin. Actually, like Dustin said earlier, this blessed person by necessity has to be a sinner because the blessed person is the one who's been forgiven. But, but the, the focus of this, this, these two verses is interesting. He mentions sin three times, and he mentions forgiveness three times, and he uses different words. And it's, it's not necessarily to describe three, three different kinds of sin or three different types of forgiveness, but, but remember, David is a poet. So what David is doing is he's, he's kind of ransacking the Hebrew language to use all the terms he can to describe the whole of sin and the whole of forgiveness, the, the depth of the sin of humanity and the greatness of God's forgiveness. So I want to look at these words a little closer. There, there's some distinction. Now, now, the first, he uses three words for sin. The first one you'll see in verse one is, is transgression. Transgression. That, that, that's kind of a, what's that called? Onomatopoeia, where the word sounds like what it means. It just sounds like Transgression. Right? And a transgression, the, the, the connotation of that word is, is it's an act of rebellion. A transgression is, is an intentional sin. It's, it's the type of sin that you know what you're doing. You know it's wrong. You know this is sinful. And yet, you go ahead and do it anyway. It's a willful act of rebellion against God. One of my, one of my professors in seminary, this has never left my head, and this is great. The way that he described transgression, he said, it's the kind of sin that after you commit it, you feel like you need to take a shower. Because it's just that willful. Transgression. Right? So the Bible says, you shall not tell a lie. Don't lie. You know that, you do it anyway because it's convenient. That's a transgression. Just a blatant violation of God's law. Scriptures teach it's a sin to have sex with anyone who's not your spouse you know that anyway you go ahead with what you want to do transgression that, that's the spirit of a transgression a willful act of disobedience against god the next word david uses is sin just kind of the general word it kind of has this idea of missing the mark going against god's law again there's a lot of overlap with these words uh, failing to live up to God's law is another way you could describe it. An action that falls short of what God has called us to. Here's the standard, God says, and you fall here. 
That's kind of the idea of a sin, right? God says, love your neighbor. You kind of try, but they're annoying. I'm not going to try that hard, right? That's sin, missing the mark. We've all committed transgressions. We've all committed sins. The third word is iniquity. Again, this is similar. Iniquity, it pictures a crooked action. It's, or sometimes it's even translated as guilt. It's, it's straying from the path. We've all, all done this. Again, we we've all have guilt for our sins. God says, go this way. We go this way sometimes. Now, look at these words again in your translation. Notice something interesting here. They're they're singular nouns. So David doesn't say transgressions, iniquities, and sins. No, he he says singular. Blessed is the man whose transgression, singular, is forgiven. Whose sin, singular, is covered. Iniquity, singular. Why? Because as humans... Our entire nature is corrupted by sin. In other words, you are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. You see the difference between those two things? We're we're not just guilty because we do sinful things. Our state is sinful. Our nature has been corrupted by sin. Our actions, what we do, flows out of our nature. We've got to understand this, because if we don't understand that, we don't really understand the depth of sin. We don't understand the depth of our guilt. We kind of think, well, I'll just change a couple of my actions, and I should be good to go. But that's not how it works. That's why in the New Testament, Christ has to give us a new nature to create us new, to make us a new creation. We're we're sinful to the core of our being. Augustine, we talked about earlier, says this, the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. And that's exactly what we see in this sin, this, this psalm. We can't know God's forgiveness if we don't know ourselves to be a sinner. And not just a good person who sometimes does sinful things, but a sinner from the core of our being. Now, now the, again, these three words he uses for sin, they're not really distinct types of sin, so don't start categorizing them and things like that. The point is that by using these three different words, David is covering every possible area of sin But the point of these verses isn't to tell us about sin. The, the, the point of these verses is about forgiveness. The focus of these verses is how amazing God's forgiveness is. See, David uses these three words to describe sin, but then he matches that by using three different words to describe God's forgiveness. Look again at verse 1 and 2. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. He says, says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Literally means like carried away. Their transgression is carried away, removed off their shoulders. The guilt of their transgression is forgotten, forgiven. 
that the burden of sin is removed, pardoned. It's another way to say it. Your, your sin needs to be pardoned if you want to walk in this blessing. You need forgiveness. David continues, whose, whose sin is covered. So, you, I mean, you can see the word picture here. Blessed is the one who has their sins covered over so that you can't see them anymore. It's, it's almost like, blessed is the one who has their sin swept under the rug. It's gone. You can't see it. If you didn't know it was there, you'd never know. That, that's the picture. We need our sin forgiven. We need it covered over. And finally, he says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now, now that is an interesting term. That's, that's legal language. Blessed is the person whose iniquity is not credited to their account. You see this in Romans 4. This is the way that the Apostle Paul in our scripture reading you might have seen uses this verse. Blessed is the person who God does not count their sin against them. This is, the, the, Paul quotes these verses at this crucial point in his argument in Romans 4. Now, now we read it earlier, but I, I want to show you just this part right here. Listen to what he's saying. Listen to the argument he's making. Paul, Paul writes this in Romans 4, verse 4. Now to the one who works, remember, his, his whole point here in Romans 4 is to show that salvation is by grace through faith, not by works. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, there's that word, as righteousness. Just as David, so Paul says, David says the same thing that I'm saying. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he cites these verses. You see, you see how Paul is interpreting these verses, how he's using them. This, this forgiveness that Paul is talking about, this salvation by grace alone through faith. Paul says, I'm just saying the same thing that David said. I'm talking about the blessing that David was talking about in Psalm 32. That, that salvation is not for those who earn it. It's not for those who are good enough. But it's for those whose faith is in God. This forgiveness, this blessing is for those who trust in the goodness of God. Blessed is the person whose sins are forgiven. So he uses these, these three words for sin and these three words for forgiveness. David is saying that as much sin as there is, there's grace to cover that. Right? We sing that song sometimes. His mercy is more. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. That's the picture that David is getting at here. Transgressions, iniquities, sins. God is able to forgive them all. To wipe them all out. To cover them all over. To remove the guilt of all of them. No matter... How serious, no matter how heinous, no matter how disgusting, whether they're sins of commission or omission, he can forgive them all. That's, that's why it's such a blessing. That's what David is saying here. The good news that David wants us to see this morning. And David says, that the one who receives this forgiveness... This pardon 
This is the person who is truly blessed and truly happy. The, the famous Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon is just so good at turning a phrase. This is, this is how he, he comments on this verse. He says this, Pardoning mercy is of all things in the world to be most prized, for it is the only and sure way to happiness. That, that's exactly what David is saying. Pardoning mercy. That's what we need. That's what the blessed person knows and lives in. Do you, do you understand the reason for David's joy in these verses? Do, do, you, do you see, because to understand the overwhelming joy of knowing God's forgiveness, you, you have to know how deep your sin really goes. If you think your sin is really not that bad, then God's forgiveness is going to be okay. I mean, I guess that's nice. But, but, if, but if you understand the overwhelming depth of your sin, then this message of forgiveness to you, this message of the ever-abounding, overflowing grace of God's forgiveness will be life to you and joy pray that you would know this grace this morning, this pardoning mercy. But, but look at verse 2. Look at the end of verse 2. It's almost like there's a catch here. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, okay? And in whose spirit there is no deceit. What? It's kind of a strange... Well, it seems like David kind of took a left turn there. What do you mean no deceit? What is he talking about? What David is, is revealing to us with this little phrase here at the end is that this forgiveness, this, this covering for sin, this pardon, this blessing, is only available to those who truly seek it from God and who truly confess their sins to God. In other words, what David is saying is you can't trick God into forgiving you. There's no little magical... Um, formula that you can say. There's no words you can say, ah, now God has to forgive me. No. This joy, this blessing of forgiveness is only found for those who honestly see their need of forgiveness and seek it from God. It's only for those who understand the wretchedness of their sin. The blessing of God is for the humble, not the proud. We saw this when we saw Jesus say to the Pharisees, I have come for sinners, not for the righteous. If you think you're righteous, I have nothing to say to you, he told the Pharisees. It's the same thing David is saying here. And, and David knew this because David had tried to hide his sin from God. And it wrecked his life. David had tried to deceive God. He tried to fool God by not confessing his sin. He tried to ignore his sin. That's why he says this. He says, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then look what he says next. He tells us about the time when he tried to deceive God. That's what he says in verse 3 and 4. Because, or 4, he says, I know this from experience. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy Upon me, speaking of God's hand, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. See, David had tried to deceive God. He tried to ignore his sin and pretend like it never happened. 
do, do you hear the gravity of his words? The, the, the seriousness of his words? When he kept silent about his sin, when he let his, his transgressions go unconfessed, it ate him from the inside out. He, he refused to acknowledge his sins to God. He kept silent. And his days were filled with groaning and sighing. That's kind of the idea behind the word here, groaning, sighing. It's, it's the same word as like the same word they use for a lion roaring. It's kind of this like, like he's, he's just in pain. He's in anguish. It's the, it's the cry of someone who is in severe distress. He, he says he felt like his bones were disintegrating. These are the words of a man whose conscience is being tormented by the guilt of his sin. Maybe some of you can understand this. His conscience is guilty. It's eating him alive because he's not confessing his sin. He's he's trying to hide from God. You see, David was the king of Israel. He was a man after God's own heart, but he was also a sinner. He he slept with another man's wife and then had that man killed to cover it up. He tried to hide his sin. He figured as long as no one knew about it, he'd be okay. It didn't work. He says, day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. What's going on here? The Lord is disciplining David. His hand is heavy upon him. It means his life is not going well. David was, was physically affected by his attempts to cover up his own sin. It's literally killing him from the inside out. This is, this is what hiding sin does. Sin isn't a joke. This is what unconfessed sin does to the believer. This is, this is something serious to think about. And as I was preparing this sermon and reading through, these, these are the verses that just really stood out to me. Trying to hide your sin from God and others, it could have physical ramifications. That's what happened to David. Now, now, we have to be careful here because we know scripturally that not all sickness, not all suffering is a result of sin. Suffering is just a part of the Christian life. Sickness is just a part of being human. But, well, in fact, actually, Jesus, Jesus rebukes his disciples for thinking that every sickness is a result of sin. Uh, in John chapter 9, look what he says. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, right? And so his disciples just assumed, look what they say, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. So this guy was born blind, this bad thing happened to him. Who sinned? Must be a result of sin. Jesus answers, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So here we have an example of someone who was sick, who was blind, and it wasn't a result of sin. It was just part of God's providence. So, so hear me correctly. I'm not saying that if you have a cough, it's God judging you. Or you should just go around and, hey, that person has a cane. I wonder what they did. That, that's not what I'm saying. 
But, but, there are times when sickness is a result of God's discipline on our lives. There are times when our suffering is a result of discipline. We, we see many examples of this in the Bible. The Apostle Paul was struck blind for his resistance to God. And God healed him. Th- think of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. Right? They, they try to lie to God. They try to lie about how much money they're giving to the church. And God kills them in the middle of the church. They just drop dead. Right? That's God's discipline. In the church of Corinth, they were not administering the Lord's Supper correctly. Look what Paul tells them in 1 Corinthians 11, 29. He says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Look at this. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, now notice that last verse. He's not saying, oh, these people are weak and ill and dying because they're unbelievers. He's saying they, they are believers, and God's disciplining them so that they won't be condemned. God's bringing them back to the right path through discipline, through them being weak and dying. God's discipline is meant to correct their path for believers that are straying. There's this connection sometimes between sin and illness and even death. Again, don't, don't, don't mishear what I'm saying. They're not losing their salvation. And it doesn't mean that all sin and suffering is connected to sin, but some is. This is one of the ways that God disciplines his children. God disciplines us so that we will turn away from our sin. That's what David was experiencing. Look at the author of Hebrews makes this really clear. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 through 11 says this. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Paul says if God's not disciplining you, if God won't discipline you, you're not a believer. Besides this, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, speaking of the earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, speaking of God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. So the goal of discipline is holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That's what David was experiencing. But later, but later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's what David was experiencing 
The Lord's hand of discipline was heavy on him because he refused to confess his sin. God disciplines us out of love. God, God has even built this into our biology. I mean, what is one of the most unhealthy things for your body? What, what do people now say that this is the cause of a lot of diseases? Well, sugar, yeah. <laughs> She's right. Stress. I'm thinking of stress. Stress. <laughs> yeah, no, it's all good. Stress is one of the most unhealthy things you can do to yourself. It literally breaks down the body. Extra pounds. Knots in your back, high blood pressure, short temper, insomnia, all of these can be traced back to stress a lot of the time. Think about what harboring unconfessed sin does to a believer. It causes you great stress. And if it doesn't, then I would say with the Apostle Paul, examine and test yourself to see if you're in the faith. But it causes us great stress. We don't want to be found out. We're hiding. So we're on edge. We're irritable. We're graceless. Because deep down we know we're, we're hiding this sin. We're putting on a show. This, this, this hidden sin, this unconfessed sin will, will wreck you. It will eat you alive like it did David. It will bring you under the discipline of God. This is what David was experiencing. This is what the Corinthians experienced. This is what Paul experienced. The discipline of God to bring us back. So I would ask you, are are you harboring any sins? Are, Are you trying to hide anything from others and from God? Are you nurturing some sinful habit that no one else knows about? Are you leaving it unconfessed? Could it it be that, that you are in some type of suffering or some type of pain because you have failed to confess your sin to God? It's a question you need to ask. Could it be that you are lacking joy in the Christian life because you're trying to hide your sin. Now again, I'm not saying that if you are sick, it's because of sin, but it's a question that you have to ask. But, but you see, hiding from God is, that's our natural way we think about things, right? That's what David tried to do. That's what Adam and Eve tried to do. The, the first sin with the first humans, the first thing they did was try to hide and cover themselves. But it's, it's miserable. And the revelation of this psalm and the rest of Scripture is that we don't have to hide from God. In fact, we can't. But, but, the, but the joy is that we don't have to. In fact, He wants us to come to Him in the fullness of our brokenness and in the fullness of our sin. God never... When you confess your sin to God, God never is like, whoa, okay, I knew it was bad, but I didn't know it was that bad. God is never surprised by your sin. So stop thinking that he will be. 
See, because it's only after this confession, it's only after acknowledgement of sin that you can experience the joy of knowing the mercy and forgiveness of God. That's where the freedom of Christ is. It's in confession and forgiveness. This is what David testifies to in verse 5. Look at verse 5. So he's wasting away, but then he, he changes. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you. He said, I'm not hiding it anymore. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. These are some of the sweetest words in Scripture. David decided, I'm not hiding anymore. I'm going to stop trying to cover my sin. I'm just going to lay them out before God. And the next phrase, and God forgave the guilt God forgave the iniquity of his sin. You see, David takes ownership of his sin here. Look look at the three words for sin. He owns it. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David's not making any excuses. These are mine. David confessed his sin, and God removes the burden God carries it away. God covers it over. God pardons his sin. And that's exactly what's so counterintuitive about the gospel, isn't it? We're sinners. We can't deal with our own sin. There's no hope. We can't fix it. We can't atone for it. We can't cover it up. We can't hide anything from God. He sees everything. He sees our thoughts. He sees our actions. He sees our, our hearts. Everything. But... We're so stupid that sometimes we think that what God wants is for us to fix it up first and then come to him. Again, that's what Adam and Eve thought. That's our natural state. But that's not what scripture teaches. God says, I know how messed up you are. I know how sinful you are. That's why I sent Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking that I'm not good enough. I've done too many sins. I did this. If you knew what I did, if you knew what I thought, you wouldn't say I could be forgiven. God says, you can. He's able. doesn't say blessed is the man who's, who's good enough to receive forgiveness. He says blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. God doesn't want us to clean ourselves up before coming to him because he knows that we can't. The, the, the truth is the exact opposite. God calls us to come to him in the fullness of our brokenness, in the fullness of our sin. And when we, we, we acknowledge the utter sinfulness and utter helplessness, when we acknowledge that we rightfully deserve condemnation, but for his mercy, there we find forgiveness. There we find mercy. There we find pardon. That, that is, that's, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ that we sang about all this morning. Christ died for us while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. God loved us before we ever loved him. God loved us in the fullness, the fullness of our sinful rebellion against him. Christ died for us fully knowing the depth of our sin. You ever think about that? Jesus died for you, knowing exactly how sinful you are. He knows your sins. He knows your weaknesses. That's why he went to the cross. 
He died for them. He paid the price. He took them upon himself in his body on the tree, Peter says. So if you are in Christ, there's nothing to hide. There's no sin in your account. It's pointless. There's nothing to be scared of. There's, There's no mixture of wrath left in God's disposition towards you. He sees Christ's righteousness if your faith is in Christ. So why hide? In fact, David says, stop. David urges you in this text to experience the grace and joy of confession and forgiveness this morning. David says, now now is the time. Not tomorrow, now. Why wait to experience the blessing? So we've seen so far the the blessing and joy of forgiveness. the, The pain of hiding from God. We've seen David's confession. Now, and now we enter into the second half of the psalm. Not the second half of the sermon, don't worry. <laughs> We're more than halfway done. But now in the second half of the psalm, we, we see this turn. There's no more mention of the sin in the rest of the psalm. Because it's been confessed. It's been forgiven. No more dwelling on it. David is a forgiving man, a forgiven man, living in the blessing of knowing God's mercy, now calls on us to join him. Look at verse 6 and 7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. You see the turn. David used to hide from God, but now that he's confessed his sins, God is his hiding place. David used to run from God. Now he runs to God for safety. And so David tells us, don't wait. If you are godly, offer your prayer of confession now. What are you waiting for? Don't hide from God. Hide in God. Hide yourself in his mercy. When your sin has been forgiven by God, nothing can touch you. Nothing else matters. You're safe from all troubles. This is, this, is what, this is what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? God, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is what David is saying here. God is my hiding place. Nothing can touch me. What a glorious passage. 
How great is the mercy of God. Our sin has been blotted out by the death of the Son of God. God's grace has come to us in His Son. He is our hiding place. Nothing can touch us. Nothing can separate us from His love. The the floodwaters of affliction and trouble will come, but they will not harm us. God is our hiding place. Christ is our sure and steady anchor. We are secure in Him. This is why harboring our sin is foolish. With unconfessed sin, you're trying to hide from God. When you confess, God becomes your hiding place. David says now is the time, and that's, that's good news, but it continues to get better. Look at verse 8 and 9. God promises to guide the one who confesses. I, the Lord speaking, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding. That's, that's God saying, don't be stupid. Which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Brothers and sisters, David says this in the Old Covenant. And it was a great display of God's grace. God will instruct and guide the one who confesses. But, but if David had a reason to glory in this truth, how much more do we have? We have the full revelation of God in his word. God speaks to us. He has given us instruction on how we should live. And it's, it's not just a dead book. It's living and active. He will counsel us with his eye upon us. As, as new covenant believers, he has put his Holy Spirit within us to guide us through his word. And his word says that it's able to equip us for every good work and everything that we will face in this life. God the Father has given us His Son and His Holy Spirit and His Word. We have everything that we need. This promise has been fulfilled. So David says, don't, don't be stubborn. Don't be foolish. Don't be like a horse that you have to jerk to come this way. Don't make God discipline you to put you back on the right path. Come willingly. Come freely. And in verse 10, he continues with a stark contrast. And this sounds a bit like Psalm 1. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Here here again, David kind of lays out the two paths. You'll see this throughout Scripture. The path of sorrow and the path of love. It's a stark contrast. Sorrow for the wicked, for those who reject God. Love for those trusting in God. Sorrow for those who play down their sin. Love for those who confess and come to God to receive forgiveness. The wicked trust in themselves and they suffer many sorrows, but those who trust in the Lord are surrounded by his love. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. What, what a phrase. Christian, we are surrounded by the covenantal love of God. No no matter which way you turn, God's love is there. No matter where you look, all you see is God's covenantal love. You can't escape it. It's a beautiful image. So we've seen through David's eyes and through his experience the great blessing and joy of knowing God's forgiveness. We've seen the torment of harboring unconfessed sin. We've seen the blessing and freedom of confession. We've seen that God promises to protect us that he promises to instruct us and guide us, and we've seen that a steadfast love surrounds us. How do we respond? 
David tells us in verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The psalm ends exactly where it began, praising God. Our response to these amazing truths should be boisterous worship, shouting. Together we must be glad in the Lord, we must rejoice, and we must shout for joy. And again, if God's Old Covenant people, Old Testament people, had reason for rejoicing and shouting, how much more do we have? Jesus has come and died in our place, paying the price for our sins. He died that we might live, and not only that, but he rose again from the dead, forever defeating sin, death, and Satan. And now he has sent his Holy Spirit into us so that we have the power to accomplish all that God has called us to. You see now why... This is Augustine's favorite psalm. You can see why as he lies in his deathbed dying, he says, write the psalm on my wall. I want to read it as I die. See, when Augustine preached on this psalm, the first words he said were this. This is a psalm about God's grace and about our being justified by no merits whatever on our own part, but only by the mercy of the Lord our God. That is the truth of this psalm that Augustine knew 1,500 years ago. And it's the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ today. What could be more comforting to a dying man or woman? So so let us, with David, with Paul, with Augustine, confess our sins to God and rejoice together. Why? Because blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. For those whose faith is truly in Jesus Christ, you are the blessed one of this psalm. We are truly blessed. Let us confess our sins to God and revel in his glorious grace. Great sinners need a great Savior. And in Jesus Christ, that's exactly what we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the blessing of forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, we thank you for saving us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Thank you for making us alive in him. Father, I pray for the believers in this room. If there be any unconfessed sin in their life, Lord, show them the joy of forgiveness. Overwhelm them with your grace and love. They may not hide anymore. Bring us into the light, Father. Father, I pray for anyone in the room who does not know this forgiveness. I pray the same thing, Father. Reveal your grace. Overwhelm them with your love. Show them the depths of their sin and then show them the overwhelming abundance of your love and mercy in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.